Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome to Show Me How Good It Gets. I'm your host, Malvika. beautiful people, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, I want to say thank you for clicking play on this episode. I am so stoked to share this with all of you. I have a very special guest on today. His name is Matt Higgins. You might know him as a guest shark on Shark Tank. That is how I had first learned of him. But before this episode begins, I want to tell you a little about who he is and where he comes from, because I think that really contextualizes this conversation. Matt Higgins grew up in abject poverty and taking care of his ailing mother. At age 16, he decided to drop out of high school, get his GED, and enroll in college, where he took night classes and graduated with a political science degree. He then started his career as an award-winning investigative reporter at the Queen's Tribune and attended Fordham University's School of Law at night, while working as the youngest press secretary in New York City history, where he managed the global media response to 9-11. Now, he's the CEO and co-founder of RSE Ventures. There's companies under it that you've definitely heard of, like Magnolia Bakery, Milk Bar, VaynerMedia. Matt made his mark with two NFL franchises. He's an executive fellow at Harvard Business School, and also he's a guest shark on Shark Tank. Now, he's an author of the book, Burn the Boats, and a friend. Here's our conversation about risk, rejection, being scared, and being brave. I hope you enjoy. Let's do it. All right. Matt Higgins on the show today. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Can't wait to talk to you about my book. Your book. So can I give you a little backstory on how I started reading the book and my first initial thoughts? I would love that. I picked it up because I recognized your name from Shark Tank. And I have to be honest, I went in with thinking like this is going to be kind of a preachy tech bro crypto kind of self-help situation and within the first couple pages it was so human and so vulnerable and emotional and each case study was really telling me a story like I really don't put a lot of books on my bedside table I think that's like a really safe space for me but I put this there immediately because I could just do one quick case study or one quick short story and then go to bed was that kind of subtle dichotomy on purpose between this like tech bro front and very soft gooey inside <laughs> i love that it's so great and i love that you pick it up because it may in the end have been too clever for my own good i mean so let me unpack it right for those who don't know burn the boats is a phrase that goes back to the beginning of recorded history it's very militaristic because it came from a military context uh, every culture uh in the world has this fabled military leader when they're back was against the wall and they're outnumbered 100 to 1, they employed the same tactic, which is to destroy their retreat. Mostly boats could have been a bridge, uh, but whatever it was that it would enable them to retreat. And why'd they do that? Obviously, so they could they could uh, marshal everything that their troops had to overcome the enemy. And when you know that you have no way home except to win, 
uh, it would drive exceptional effort. So it shows up in the Art of War, Sun Tzu, 500 BC. It's attributed to Cortez in 1519. Uh, and people think that's you know where it came from, but it's not. So I've always been fascinated. Why is it that military leaders understand throughout history what we intuitively reject is that humans perform better without a backup plan. And when I began to audit my own life and how I got here, which we can get into, I realized that the common theme for everything I've ever been able to do was in that moment, I just said, F it. You know, like, I'm going to go all in. I, I'm a catastrophizer. I'm, I'm the angst-ridden, anxiety-laden human. I'm not the perfect self-possessed uh, person who, you know, does everything effortlessly, even though I might make it look that way. It's, a, it's an act. And so I, but I feel like people who are like me have had anxiety or angst or whatever. Um, we self-select out of that cohort that allows themselves to go all in. Like we think it's not for us. And so my thought was, why don't I appropriate this militaristic phrase and pull it forward and make it available for the rest of us? So the cover is a Trojan horse. I do think it, one would look at it like the fire and actually let me show you. So, um, but there's metaphors buried within the metaphors. So it is burn the boats. And that is, looks like, it looks like a pagan sign, but actually <laughs> it is um, it is a paper boat floating in a child's bathtub deliberately because I do think that the first boat, metaphorical boat that we need to burn to go all in stems from our childhood issues that are unresolved. And so I lead with that. You don't know it at first. So, and I wanted to model what burning boats look like from the very beginning. And the first boat was that of the stink of failure. So the book starts with failure that was supposed to be triumph. And I had to rewrite the book when I was at the publisher. And then I go on and on. So the answer is that it's very deliberate, perhaps too clever for my own good, but it's all an attempt to appropriate this phrase and make it available for the rest of us. Yeah, I think it's interesting also what you say about your childhood, because people on the outside, they see you as, you know, you're a shark, you've been a hand in all these big companies, big brands. You dropped out of high school at 16, kind of purposefully, and, you know, went to college, skipped a couple steps, and had a really hard home life. You were trying to cater to your entire family, your mom who was dying at the time. What was that like? And do you sometimes now feel like well, people don't know the real me and where I come from because you're rich and famous now? Such a good question. I'm not, first of all, I'm not that fan, I'm like a C-rate celebrity. So I'm like quasi half famous. But um, yeah, that is a big issue because what's the point of everything, right? I just I decided a long time ago that ameliorating suffering is the highest and best use of my life. I've been to the mountaintop. There isn't that much to see. I've had a lot of success in these different industries. But the one thing that moves me and still resonates is the act of interceding in someone's life, making a deposit that changes the trajectory. However, that is a piece of advice, a piece of care, concern, empathy. The more prominence and power I have, the more impactful it is when I give a moment of myself. And so, but one of the frustrations is you you show up in the world as the end result of all the things you've done. And people make assumptions. You're rich, you have good hair. I do have good hair. <laughs> and like, you you know what I mean? You teach at Harvard Business School. You were probably born in Connecticut, you know, maybe Greenwich. They make all these assumptions. And like, it's not that I care about that. It's that it's not useful. What is useful though, is showing up that way as a byproduct when you know the origin story wait a second, you grew up in a roach motel in Queens. You dropped out of high school because you were so desperate at times that you wanted to run the car into a tree because you didn't know what to do and you were forced to be a parent as a child. 
you ate government cheese and spam and you hid that from everybody at school. You know what I mean? And like you made this radical decision that only somebody who had their back up against the wall would ever make, which is to drop out of high school on purpose to go to college at 16 so I could get a better paying job. Instead of making three seventy five an hour at McDonald's, making $8 an hour, delivering flyers for a congressman. Like, like when you look at the cumulative um, choices I made and you look at the environment I was born into, there are a lot of people that could meet me there, right? Oh, I'm desperate too. And I'm growing up in a hard situation. I've been forced to take care of my dad who's a deadbeat. You know what I mean? Like I'm struggling with depression or I just wish I was born into another universe. Whatever it is, I want somebody to meet me there, not in the end. The end is boring. The end is what we aspire to, right? But like that's commoditized. Everybody aspires to these nice things, but the beginning matters. And so this book is my attempt to to pull back the curtain. And the only way to do that is to move away from empty Instagram platitudes, you know, of basically like failure is great, you know, shed the shame. Like to me, that doesn't stick, right? Like it sticks for a second on a Monday morning with Monday, Monday motivation hashtags, but it doesn't stick long-term. What sticks is storytelling. And so I worked really hard to model what shedding shame looks like, model and model what overcoming failure looks like, share very uncomfortable raw details of my my life. You telling me that you take those stories, put it by your bedside and connected with it, you know, as a young student going, getting your PhD can connect with somebody on Shark Tank who you believe is supposed to be now other than, right? Because society says I'm wealthy, privileged, whatever I am, right? Is amazing that we can now meet, right? On a, on a DM on Instagram saying like, I can connect with this book. Like, that was the object of the exercise. To me, that is useful. And it's probably the greatest accomplishment of my life. Thank you for writing it. I really I really feel very strongly about it, which is why I, I first sent a DM, honestly not expecting a response. I mean, I, it was out in the ether, but I really believe in telling people when they have shaped you, when they have helped you. I, you know, I think that's like a core thing. I write to every author I like, and most of them don't respond, and that's fine with me, but it's really about... You know, you've Wait, put your blood, sweat, and tears. Wait, you have like your own study, mini study. I don't know how many you've responded to, but who responds and what is there a common theme or thread among those who do? Totally. Well, I started doing this thing where it was like rejection therapy. Before I started my PhD program, my advisor told me, she was like, you got to get real used to being rejected because you're going to send out papers, you're going to try to get grants. It's just a part of the process. And I've always been really bad at it. I, when people tell me no, I can feel myself get sweaty. So I was like, this is something I have to work on. And last summer, my best friend and I did this thing where every day we would try to get rejected. We would say, we have to have someone say no to us. So whether that's like a barista at a coffee shop or writing an Instagram DM to someone or like flirting with a stranger, that was kind of our goal. And it really made me better. And what I learned actually was a lot of times when I would try to get rejected, I would actually succeed. Like I would actually get a win. People actually would want to help me, which was a really crazy, beautiful thing. And I actually made so many friends because of that. Like some artists are my friends now. Some authors I like are my friends now. So it's been a really beautiful thing. And now it's become something where I, I want to do it. And the out, I'm kind of detached from the outcome of it. And I, I like it a lot. And it works out a lot. I love that rejection therapy. I wish I had put that in a book, actually. I may add a bonus <laughs> chapter about that. So You can steal it. Steal it. Put it in your next book. Oh, this yeah. book really feels, this is like a first book, you know? It's number one. Oh, you mean me? Oh, in terms of like putting it all in? Yeah. Somebody else somebody else said that to me. They said it's like an artist with an album. Like it just like it was left all in the in the book. You know, it it's interesting you said that. It is exactly that. There's so much engineering that went into this book because 
I do feel like I've been gifted with pattern recognition. I've been through a ton. I know what it takes to to resonate, right? To convey an idea. I'm good at storytelling. I was a reporter as a kid. So I feel like I have all the skills. But more importantly, I always say I didn't write a book. I engineered an outcome. I wanted when you were done with this to feel seen as if somebody held up a mirror to you, as if the best friend who has only good intentions in giving you the advice. I wanted you to feel not lectured to, but commiserated with. I wanted to feel like you didn't read a reference book, but you read a novel that made you cry in the beginning, cry in the end, because that's life. You know what I mean? There were like a lot went into it. And so when it works, it's it's like breathtaking. And then there are days when I'm like, it's not working. You're so grandiose. This is like so stupid. (laughs) And then I'll get a DM from somebody like you. I'm like, oh, it worked. Because that is the object. It doesn't like, there's no, there's no definition of winning. Like, it's just about impact at scale. And so every DM is just another illustration of of a form of winning because that was the purpose of it, right? Oh, I touched somebody. They felt seen. They felt supported. They made a radical decision. Like, it's extraordinary. And I think about yield of effort. I put three years of my life to write this book. But to change one person's life who made a radical decision because of it, like, out of everything I've done on TV, teach at Harvard, money, whatever, nothing compares to that. Right. Because we're all just on this journey together trying to live our best lives. If I had a chance to make a contribution to somebody else, like nothing compares. Again, I sometimes I feel so corny, but it is true. It's like it the, is the so true. I get when I get those messages is like, oh, my God. Well, something I didn't tell you the last time we spoke and after we ended the call, I was like, oh, I have to tell him this is I think the magic of Shark Tank, of course, it's inspirational and it's educational. But it takes this kind of mysterious, daunting subject, which is investing, raising capital, and makes it so hyper accessible that people watch it with their kids, people watch it with their grandparents. And this book does a very similar thing of making these kind of big, scary subjects really easy to understand. And I love that. I want to read. No, that was hard to do because remember, I teach at Harvard, right? So there's a part of my brain and I love studies and science. I geek out. We talked about this, right? I just love studies. But that's not how people learn. So it took a lot of almost forbearance, right? Like, you're not trying to show off how clever or smart you are. (laughs) You're trying to reach people and commiserate. And that took a lot of discipline for me. Uh, Interesting. I know it sounds counterintuitive to write in a way that would be accessible, but uh, there's ego gratification would say write to please yourself, right? Whereas I always tried to keep the reader at the center of the journey, not show off my capability. And when people say what you just said, it makes me feel very proud because it just took a ton of work to do that. And not, I really want, I want to write like the tipping point or, you know what I mean? <laughs> I wanted to write a science driven book and there is a tad bit of science and my editor would always be like, simmer down with the studies, like <laughs> only you care. I'm like, but I really I loved- care. I loved that part. But, you know, fellow academic, like I get it. Yeah. <laughs> right. You want to delve into the science a little bit for the audience so that we know what the Absolutely. Is. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me so, the science behind destroying your plan B. Tell me about that. Yes. So, again, what I love about this topic is a good percentage of people, probably like 30 to 40 percent, when they hear burn the boats and they hear the premise, right, which is, which is that your very backup plan that you've been told all your life from mom and dad and everybody else is prudent is actually undermining and sabotaging your very goal, your true purpose. And people say like, what? And they and they define what I'm saying when they hear it to protect themselves. They say, no, well, I have bills to pay. It's easy for you to say. And I have kids to take care of, you know, whatever reputation to manage. Like, 
And that's exactly not at all what I'm saying. So let's start with the science, right? Um, there was a great study out of Wharton in 2014 that wanted to identify what is the impact uh, of backup plans on results and motivation. And I want to talk about the, the construct of the study. It doesn't really matter. But what they were able to identify, they were gave permission to the one group to just think about a backup plan, but not put any energy into formulating or executing it. And what they found is the group that was just allowed to think about it performed materially less on achieving their primary goal. But equally as interesting, they just didn't care as much anymore. So what it proved is merely thinking about a backup plan makes you much less likely to win and much and care a lot less about winning. So why is that? Anybody who's listening to me, think back to the time you did something extraordinarily difficult, so hard, and think about the amount of energy and sacrifice you had to make to achieve it, and but how badly you wanted it, right? Now imagine just mathematically saying, okay, the 100% of my effort was went towards that thing because it hurt so much. I know that was 100% because it hurt, right? Now take away 15% of it, right? Just if you had done 15% less effort towards whatever it is you achieved, do you think you would have achieved it? And the answer is always no. That's a backup plan. Backup plans represent energy leakage. And that energy leakage is enough to go ahead and make it less likely to do what you want. So now you're listening to me thinking, yeah, all sounds good. But what about prudence? How do I protect myself? How do I keep myself safe? That's what I wanted to do with this book. Plan A, going all in, requires you to process risk, actually. It requires you to have a plan to mitigate, to be built into your plan A. So what's my process, right? Whenever I undertake something really hard, trying to get on Shark Tank, trying to teach at Harvard, <laughs> right? I embrace my catastrophization and my anxiety. I say, okay, Matt, what's the worst thing that's going to happen to you if you pursue this and you fail short, right? And usually the answer you find out is reputationally. So you pressure test. I mean, I'm going to be out of a job. I'm going to have lost thousands of dollars. I'm going to whatever. And then you say, okay, what would I do to mitigate those bad things if they were to happen? That's step two. And what you find is that humans, we vastly underestimate our capacity to mitigate all bad things that happen. It's you know wired into our primitive factory settings. We know how to take care of ourselves and to defend ourselves against every threat, but we never ask the questions. And once we do, we realize, okay, third question. What's the likelihood that this crazy thing I'm imagining would happen that's really bad? No one will like me anymore if I fail or whatever. I'll be embarrassed. What's the likelihood that it'll happen? And what we find is when we actually put a number to it, the percentage likelihood of the very bad things we think about are very remote. And in fact, if in a given month you were to write down a list of all the bad things you anticipate might happen this month, and in the end you look back and say the bad things that did, the things that did weren't on your list usually, and the things that were on your list never happened, right? That's a, that's the definition of anxiety. And in the fourth step, right, the simple four-step process, what would I be willing to do to achieve my planning? What would I be willing to do to be on Shark Tank? What would I be willing to do to teach at Harvard Business School to prove to myself that that high school dropout could do anything? Right. When our why is so powerful, we would come within an inch of our lives. We'd walk on glass. We'd walk on hot coals. At least that's for me and probably everybody that's listening. Right. When you put those four things together, that's your plan A. So why does it all matter? It matters is once you've gone through that process and you fully commit and you can put 100 percent of your energy towards your plan A. When your backup plan sneaks into your brain as a defense mechanism, which is all a backup plan is, and you've already done my four step process, you'll be like, Matt, stop it. Like. The train has left the station. Now I'm mixing metaphors. You're all in. Like, you've already thought about it. Asked and answered, Judge. 
I'm good. And but when you by doing that, you'll find you're fearlessly can embrace here. That is all my book is saying. I deconstructed through 50 different case studies, through different studies, through science, through psychology and history. But that's a simple bottom. But because people who are listening right now, if you have anxiety or you have imposter syndrome or you have legacy issues that you haven't dealt with, those are the boats that you return to because you haven't done my four step process on your plan A. If you just simply embrace the simple life hack, I'm telling you everything will change. But if you listen to my title and you say, I got bills to pay, you're never going to achieve what you really want to achieve in life. See, I'm so interested in the ways we as a society can democratize knowledge. And of course, platforms like TikTok can do that. But so can people like you who are hugely successful, being really vulnerable and honest and transparent about what has contributed to your success, what attitudes, what frameworks. And I think it's interesting how in America, especially, we talk about the American dream, but there's also a culture of you have to pay your dues. You kind of have to do A and then B and then C, and there's no way you're getting to where you want to be till you do all of that. There's like this bias towards incrementalism, right? And this book kind of says you can chart your own path. And in, in a less cheesy way than maybe I just said. How do you think people know where in the timeline they are? Because there is totally value to learning on someone else's dime, right? Not going out and becoming an entrepreneur at 12 without knowing anything, right? There is, there is definitely something to be said about the learning process. But when do you say, you know what, I'm going to do it on my own? Like, when is that supposed to be for people? Yeah, great. I love that you use the bias towards incrementalism. That's from the book. Yeah, that's um, from the book. I, uh, I told you I read yeah. the book. <laughs> no, I love it. But also the way you're synthesizing a book, you're like a, like an AI chatbot right now, <laughs> which makes sense because <laughs> you're a scientist, right? Um, so this is such an important topic, especially for young people who are listening to right now. All I'm trying to say in my book and in my experience is your first reflex should always be, who made these rules? We are governed by unwritten unwritten rules are the most insidious of them all, right? Like they're, they're these things that we conform to. We don't know why, where they came from. And I first argue when you encounter an unwritten rule, your first answer should be, question should be, who made this rule? And the second question is, what's the purpose of this rule? And the third question is, why must I submit to this rule, right? And the reason why that's so important is a lot of the unwritten rules are actually meant to either subjugate you or to organize you into a band. Like if you think about a corporation, right? We have these titles, you will start as a coordinator. You will then get promoted <laughs> to a manager. After you get that on your fifth anniversary, you will be a director. After you become a director, you will be a vice president. One day you might be a senior vice president. If you make it to executive vice president, you might one day make CEO. That's the trajectory. Your 20 years of your life just went by in my little 60 seconds, right? So the <laughs> rules, unwritten rules are actually meant not to be Oliver Stone-ish on you, but like they are meant to organize society and make things efficient. Sometimes people keep people in power. So I'm very suspicious. And why, where did that come from? When I was, when I was desperate, my mother was dying in the room next door. Um, and I would, and I would excitedly tell my guidance counselor, I, there's another way. There's a hack, which is if I drop out of high school at 16, I can get a GD. I can double my salary now, they didn't know how desperate I was because I was concealing it. So it's important to anybody listening, be careful who's, whose advice you take if you haven't given them all the information to give you good advice, right? It's on you. Most of us withhold data. I withheld the fact that I was living in a roach motel and my mother was, you know, wasting away. Point of that is the unwritten rule of society is 
you must go to high school. You can't drop out of high school because that means you're rejecting an entire profession of people whose job it is to keep you there. And I was like, nah, I'm pretty sure I'm smart enough to, I don't think I need like trigonometry. I don't even know what it is, but I don't think I'm gonna use it. So we'll skip that. I'm gonna go to college. Who made the rule, right? The rule works for the average situation, but not for the kid who's desperate. I dropped out of high school. I went to my prom at 17 as president of my debate team. By the time I was in my 20s, I was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize, all because who made the rules? I made rules for myself again. So number one, unwritten rules challenge it. A big rule that everybody listening to that's usually forced to follow is called incrementalism, right? Which basically means life unfolds like sedimentary rock, right? There must be this step and this step. So <laughs> I'm not rejecting expertise. Expertise matters. When I'm arguing for it, if you believe based upon auditing yourself that you have the expertise necessary to achieve the result, right? Then ask yourself, why do I have to take an incremental approach? And a lot of times the answer you'll give is like, well, I won't be allowed to start this business unless I spent four years at a consulting firm. That's an actual fact pattern I, I find at Harvard Business School. When I ask people why they go into these consulting firms, McKinsey's and others, like more often than not, the answer is because they're supposed to. Well, I can't do the thing I love to do unless I'm a consultant. I'm always like, well, well, why? Well, because as a consultant, I'm going to get exposure to all these different businesses. Okay, but I'm a business person. I don't care if you got exposure to that through a consult. Like, who made the rule? And so in the book, I want to open everyone's eyes to the power of when you challenge incrementalism and you consider another doctrine, which is called step change. Step change means basically, it's hard to articulate, but basically, you know, a decision or an action that's taken that's unrelated to that which preceded it, right? Like, so to make that less abstract, I tell the story in my book of one of my students, I love this story, who came to me to visit me and he was like, I really want to start my own private equity firm, but I'm about to take a job at a soul killing private equity firm. And I'm like, why are you going to do that? He goes, well, no one is going to, you know, give me money. And I said, why won't they? Well, I've never been a partner at a VC firm. I said, well, do you know what it, do you have what it takes to be a successful investor? I said, yeah. So well, what does it take? I have access to deal flow. I know how to spot a great deal. I'm going to focus on the defense sector. And I was a special operator in the military. I went to Harvard. I know what I'm doing. I said, so then start a fund. He goes, no, no one's going to give me money. I said, yes, yeah, somebody will. I said, who? I said, I don't know, but until the one person does. And so he leaves my office and I get a phone call three months later and he asked me for my size. I'm like, what do you want my size for? He said, because I want to send you swag. I said, of what? Of the firm I created when I walked out of your office. We just raised $10 million. True story. Amazing. Amazing. So I'm sharing this bias towards him and people are like, where do you get off? I'm like, think about it in the case of me teaching at Harvard Business School. I could have easily have taught at my beautiful school I went to. It's called Queens College. I could have easily taught at my wonderful law school I went to. It's called Fordham Law. But I wanted to teach you the best. And I never taught anywhere in my life. And I spent a year and I'm on the faculty of Harvard Business School as an executive fellow. So amazing things happen when you challenge incrementalism and you consider step changes. That, that was a long me. speech. I'm sorry I went on, but I wanted to unpack it. So fun. No, and you unpacked it beautifully. And can I tell you one of my favorite quotes from the book? It's the law of compound interest applies as much to ideas and achievements as it does to money, which is exactly what you're explaining here of you could do things later in life a little earlier because you took, you know, those two years at the end of high school and smushed them into a GED. And this is not to say everyone should drop out of high school, but everyone needs to kind of reevaluate things they're doing just because everyone else does it, right? 
Yeah, I love it. Let's get into that for half a second. So Warren Buffett talks about the most important financial principle, which he's right, is compounding, right? Money just compounds. You could get very rich. You've all seen the TikTok videos about cup, you know, cup of coffee put away a day. But compounding applies is the benefit of incrementalism, like you just said, by pulling forward. In my case, because I dropped out of high school at 16 years old, I pulled forward my entire professional career. But by the time I was 26 years old, I was press secretary to the mayor of New York. I went from a high school dropout making $375 an hour to $105,000 an hour. I don't know what the math is of the Kager on that, but like kind of crazy. And I continue to this day to benefit from the exponential returns of that, you know, early decision. And so anyone listening and, and, and a lot of where the bias towards incrementalism comes from, unfortunately, is our parents, mostly motivated by by good intentions. They want to keep you safe and they feel like if you just submit, <laughs> you'll probably be safe, you know, because that's what they were told. And sometimes because they're projection, right? People who haven't taken risks are usually not very permissive of other people taking risks. So just want to open everybody's eyes to the consequences. Yeah, let's let's do a little shift in gears. You mentioned yes. imposter syndrome a little bit ago. And my primary audience is like 16 to 25 year old young women. And the most common question I get is relating to imposter syndrome. It's a term I really hate. And every time I get the question, I, I wanna like shake the person. But how do you deal with self-doubt is what I'm gonna ask because I, I'm trying to really throw that phrase away. But self-doubt, let's repackage it. I wanna hear why you hate it because now I'm curious. Um, I think imposter makes you sound like a fraud and then syndrome really reminds me of when they were, you know, female hysteria in the 19th century. I think it gives kind of a very scary feeling to the, to the thing that is self-doubt, you know, and self-doubt is very normal and can be unpacked and maybe repackaged. Imposter syndrome is just so much heavier and it seems yeah. more permanent. It seems like a lot harder to untangle. So all very true. I use the word because I think uh, imposter syndrome encompasses not only the feeling of self-doubt, but the fear of discovery of a mm -hmm. hidden secret. There's a shame about imposter syndrome in that context of lack of belonging that implies discovery of inauthenticity and whatnot. So um, for me, I talk openly in the book about how when I went on Shark Tank, that I was, I mean, I could tell the story, but the bottom line is like, I, I was so freaked out just thinking that they were going to realize that this kid from Queens who ate government cheese has no, no business being on the set. And I got one of the best pieces of advice I've ever gotten from Damon John, who grew up in Queens as well, pulled him aside. I was honest with him. And, and he said, you belong here because you are here. And it's almost like Socrates, like, because it's basically saying like, there is no arbiter of belonging in society that merely being in the room means you belong in the room. No one gets to decide. And actually, if you wire your brain to think somebody does, you're already forfeiting your power. Right. So one, you have to reclaim it by saying, I belong here because I am, I, because I am here. And then that's where self-talk matters so much. Talk about this in a book. Studies show how you do self-talk does matter a lot. If you say, like, I'm going to do this, I'm going to win. It doesn't work because th that... It's you talking to you. If you create a super ego authority who's like, you know, the equivalent of a pet rock or a secret friend, but who's got your best interest at heart, it's not a parent. It's just like, Matt, you belong on this set because you did everything, did millions of dollars of deals. You engineered your way out of poverty. You did harder things than anyone else here, whatever it takes. Like doing it in the third person becomes much more effective. I talk about imposter syndrome in the book openly because... I want you to know, and everyone out there, this audience, 
that everybody deals with it. And those who don't oftentimes tend to be a little bit narcissistic. Now I'm condemning everybody, unfortunately, <laughs> like, you know, sociopaths or really well adjusted <laughs> and years of therapy. But the bottom line is I share it because if you watch me on Shark Tank on an episode, I'm saying this subjectively and dispassionately, you would say he's pretty good. That's why I invited me back. They made me a recurring shark. I got my own TV show. I would almost seem like a natural. And I thought that that was doing a disservice, actually. I'm not helping anybody by seeming like a natural. So let me tell you how damn unnatural I was and how, looking back, it's so pathetic. And it's to show that we all deal with it. And I argue in the book and in life that actually we need to change our relationship with imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome is actually just a feedback loop showing you that you are technically in a new uncomfortable situation. Imposter syndrome is your brain's protective mechanism of saying, I don't have any neural pathways for this experience. I don't have tracks. And your brain always wants to be very, there's incredible uh, science hacks that show how your brain, even optically, will always want to see the right thing that it saw before because your brain is wired to be efficient to preserve carbohydrates, preserve energy. And so imposter syndrome is your brain being like, I have no neural pathways. Uh, I like, <laughs> And then that's why when you do it the second time around, it feels so much easier, master of the obvious, right? So anyone listening here, I just my overall point I want to make especially to your uh, female audiences listening, because there's incredible um, uh, data around showing uh, women experiences much more you know, than men for whatever reason, that um, everyone deals with it and that you should see this as a feedback loop for the fact that you're doing new, uncomfortable, hard things. Yeah, I always tell myself you have to do it scared. If you're not a little bit on edge, a little bit scared, you're not stepping out of your comfort zone enough. And I like, love that. Right now. Thing, yeah. No, the hardest thing like I had to do after Shark Tank, believe it or not, was the second time I did Shark Tank. Like when I, I talk in the book about this too, you have to switch intrinsic motivation systems. One is motivated by a degree of fear and anxiety, scared, as you said. But when you habituate something because you did it before, then I'm like, well, now which motivation system am I going to use to excel? And I talk in the book about how you have to toggle between um, um, fear as a propellant and anxiety, although the right balance of it, and then uh, resist habituation a degree and utilize the pursuit of excellence, almost like you're a painter. And I'm like, I just want to make the best goddamn painting I can make. <laughs> and that's going to make me excel. So the second time on Shark Tank, it was had I had to be very conscious of the pursuit of excellence because I couldn't get nervous about it anymore. I, I, I had mastered it. And I have to, even now at Harvard, now that I'm in my fifth year in the classroom, what's my what's my motivation system it's no longer fear and anxiety and imposter syndrome now it's some um, honor i need to honor the time of the students and i need to honor the institution and i need to honor myself by giving it the best i have but it's important to be cognizant which motivation system am i going to use for what i'm doing but the bottom line is don't worry about imposter syndrome embrace it as the fact that you're doing hard things think about the alternative if you didn't have imposter syndrome you'd have like uh melancholy syndrome you would have complacency syndrome complacency syndrome probably and that's not i like that yeah because my biggest fear in life is i wake up one day and i'm unhappy with the life that has just happened to me not the life i have chosen and created for myself and i i also think about you have to do it scared with leaving things right leaving the job leaving the relationship i think you always have to do it a little before you're ready because by the time you're ready it's too late it's just not good anymore Um, by the way that is just that is absolutely fact by the way, anybody yeah. out there listening, like the opportunity is in the zone of discomfort. It's in the zone of not 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 the complete picture. 
not the full evidential package. You know, it's in the qualitative, not the quantitative. Like that's where the unlock is, is in the interstitial of not having all the answers. Absolutely. Okay. You talked about Shark Tank. We have to get into it. What was your first time on Shark Tank like? Um, It was amazing. I mean, uh, to put it in perspective, like Shark Tank now, especially like the guest sharks gravitates towards like celebrities more and, you know, um, Gwyneth Paltrow, like all these huge names. And so back then I was not one of those. I, I had to manifest being on Shark Tank and I'll skip the year of effort to do so. But then to get on the set of like this show, the number one business show in the world, and especially where I came from, um, it was definitely overwhelming with nerves because it was gratuitous. Like back to imposter syndrome. I bet you everybody who's felt this can relate, right? You find it reminded me of being in a bar in college and my head over the toilet being, and you're bargaining with God, like, please Lord, <laughs> like if you just can get me out of this toilet, I promise I'll never get this drunk again. And so for me being <laughs> at a shark tank, I'm like, okay, this was so stupid. Like I've been up for four, I'm a terror, I have insomnia. So I've been up for 48 hours. No, no BS. When I went on shark tank the first time I had been up for 48 hours. Oh my God. Like, my wife wakes up at 5 AM. I take in an Ambien like, and she's like, babe, are you ready? I'm like, I haven't slept. I was like, I'm not ready. I'm, go- I'm actually going to call him, tell him about food poisoning. I ate salmon. Like, so the, so there's, sh- there's the before and after. And by the way, you know how I got through it? I tell the story in the book. I'm in the shower and sitting on the floor. This is so like juvenile. I don't know why it was so overcome, but I was still, it was a very emotional moment for me from where I came. It just was, I wish it wasn't. And, and I'm sitting in the chair and I'm thinking, you know, I didn't come from dirt, take care of my mother, watch her die on the first day I became press secretary. Like all this anguish to get here, to succumb on the altar because I couldn't regulate my own mind. And my owner, like, I'll be, let me be defeated by circumstances or by the enemy, but not the enemy within. That's not, I don't want to go down that way. And I was like, pull your shit together. And then I I was like, what could get me through? I need a muse. You know what I mean? I need, I need, I need a friend. And I remember thinking, I know who's going to get me through this. The great poet from Detroit, you know, Eminem. And I'm going to listen to Lose Yourself on a Loop. And I told my wife, I have an idea. She's like, that's good, honey. Okay, and she has a video of me, headphones, <laughs> for two hours I listened to Mom Spaghetti, nervous already, for two hours on a loop. Like, I would take it off, and I'm sitting there on set, and, like, it was, like, amazing. So another point, anybody out there, like, who gives a shit whatever it takes for you to get through whatever it is you to get through, but whatever your self-soothing mechanisms, as long as they don't hurt anybody but yourself, embrace it and don't be embarrassed by it, like... I love anthem music or melancholy music, right? So Eminem Same. was what it's, right? Like, I like a little bit of sadness. I mean, well, I've run many marathons. I run it on a loop to the same three three songs, kind of nuts for hours and hours and hours. Like, Take Me to Church was one of them. Like, anth- anthem kind of sort of melancholy songs. I'm but the same way. I listen to, like, one song on repeat when I like it. Yeah. That's how I am. And with Shark Tank, with, the, with, with marathons, I know we're jumping around. I was like, all right, marathons are about forbearance about regulating yourself for, to go the distance, the opposite of what I normally do. I usually power through everything. It's why I run a bunch of marathons. I'm like, what's this skill? How the hell does one do this? You know? So, but I was like, I need to make this repetitive so I can, I can control myself and control the cadence of my heart, and my mind. And I would listen to the same, but I would only listen to songs I had listened to once before. And then I would say, okay, that one. And then I would wait and I would like that one. So that when I was on the, on the run, I would then get to discover it 26 times over. And the wow. three would always add up to about 10 minutes. And then people are like, so you listen to the same song 26 times? I was like, the same three <laughs> song, 26. And then my last mile, 
the last thing I would have one song that I would save for the triumph. And like, um, anyway, that was my form. And now as we're talking, like I want to run another marathon, but anyway, that was my shark tank experience. That's how I got through it is Eminem. It's interesting being, you weren't an original cast member. So you've already been a viewer of the show before you're on the show. Was there anything that caught you off guard or that you weren't expecting of how the behind the scenes works? Such a good question. Yeah, so a couple of little things for those who are Shark Tank fans. I loved it. I had seen every single episode. I used to watch it with my son. My son's not a sports fan, could not care about all the other things I did, but we would watch Kevin O'Leary together and, and <laughs> dissect the deals and stuff. And and we would do like, you know, terrible pitches for Shark Tank. And that was like our It's play. really brought families together. I mean, I watched with my parents. Everyone watched show of that families watch together. It's like amazing. And I watched everything with my son. So a few things that were interesting. One... Um, everybody's actually very welcoming and warm until the lights start. And then it's like, it's actually more cutthroat and violent that you see on TV. It's a hundred percent authentic. It's a hundred. And the reason why is it's their money. So like, nobody cares about your feelings. Nobody cares about the theatrics when it's their money. And so that's interesting. I used to watch on TV and be like, what are they writing down? This is, you can have an, like an abacus. Like this isn't complicated when you're on the set. It's like, Oh man, <laughs> like, like, like I can't keep valuation plus perform. That's another thing. Um, interesting. Uh, it's completely real. Like, like it just happens and unfolds. The only thing you're seeing on at home is a edited down version of it. But when I watched it, the pitches are about 40 minutes. I couldn't tell what was edited out. You don't know who's going to walk through the door. They give you no information about it. Interesting. They give you just There's, a name? They don't give you anything. Like you're sitting oh, there. Wow. It's like you as the view, you as the viewer experience Shark Tank exactly as how a shark experiences it. Dun, wow. dun, 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 dun. Hey, sharks. It's like, wait, it was so surreal. Like, oh, this is like how it is. Like, this <laughs> yeah. is like, you know, and then, and then everyone's, here's the other crazy thing. They sit the newbie shark, the guest on the end, actually, I don't know if it's on purpose. I feel like it's always next to Lori Grenier because she's more nurturing. Hi, Matt. She's so sweet. She's so sweet on the show. She's like, hi, supportive. Um, But you're at the end and everybody starts shouting over each other. And I'm like, how am I supposed to get in there? That's the other thing. And Uh, the part that- You gotta be a shark. You gotta be a shark. And the part that's kind of interesting as a new, it probably gets a lot easier. It definitely got a lot easier the second time around. But the first time around, you're sort of blending performance making sure you're articulate, pithy. You're actually thinking about which shark am I? Am I an amalgam of those sharks? Who am I? Which is a mistake, actually. But you're 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 toggling between um, probing, evaluating, and seducing, right? Because you want to win over the other. So your mind is constantly toggling between, the, am I assessing? Am I trying to appeal? So that is kind of fascinating, right? Like, at what point am I switching to trying to win this deal? versus what I'm evaluating. And from a sort of, you know, um, a psychological standpoint, trying to assess the veracity of a human in a 40-minute 40, 40 pitch, plus whether I want to do it or not, plus how am I going to beat them, is interesting. A lot of brain cells are used up. And it's a 10-hour um, shoot. So you're doing eight, um, basically, you shoot 10 segments over the course of a single day. So oh, like, my God. Yeah. So and you're just always, exhausted. Oh, my God. You're so, like, the first time... It was like you start the day at seven. This is, again, after being up for 48 hours and you're sitting on the chair in the end, you have to get in and it goes for 10 hours. Like by the end, I was so tired, though. I felt good. They usually drink between the ninth and 10th pitch. So like music comes on. Mark Cuban starts dancing to Purple Rain. Don't know why. At least in my time. Like it was so fun. And everyone like takes a shot. I'm like, was I get a shot? 
don't remember what it was. Like, like you can't have like a lemon jello or something like that. Like, I, I can barely perform as it is. So, but it was amazing. Honestly, one of the best experiences of my life. One of the hardest. And my sweet wife would sit on set, uh, stand on set, Sarah. And uh, I have the most amazing partner. And she would like look at me because I have terrible posture. I actually wore a buzzer on the back of my neck that would zap me every time. Yeah. I'm all about torture. Um, and then my <laughs> wife would sit there so sweet. She'd be like, she like, the little eyes going up, like sit up straight. Like, so. <laughs> but, it, but it was amazing. I, I recommend it to everybody. If you can go, go online right now. There's a little form you could fill out. How to be a, I'm just kidding. There's not, but you should, it's a worth, it's a worthy aspiration to end up being on Shark Tank. 40,000 people apply every year at stand-up places all over the cattle calls all over the United States and only 150 will end up uh, going through. Wow. And what is the post experience? Like, let's say someone makes a deal. How many of those deals actually end up going through? How many end up falling through? And what are the reasons they often fall through? Yeah. So the, the how many fall through seems to be like a state secret. So I'll, I'll, I'll keep that. But they fall for the reasons you wouldn't think. I hear a lot of like, it's the sharks, you know, you presume that, right? But there's equal different reasons about why things don't fall through. Often there's, there's the innocent explanation, which is maybe the person got over their skis while they were pitching. And then when the cameras are off, they're like, I didn't mean to give away half my company. <laughs> That's one part of fact pattern. They make commitments they don't want to keep. Who knows? You know, this isn't like, these are complicated deals where somebody's making a big decision to bring somebody in. It's real money at stake, right? I'd say another category is... You either didn't know your numbers or you fudged your numbers. You go, oh, I confused EBITDA for revenue. You know, uh, there's a little bit of those, there's those things or, or there's, or there's probably a category of rights. You know what I mean? Obligations, rights, you know, sometimes it's the first time anybody's taking an outside capital and you are giving up, not control, but you are bringing somebody into your life who's going to have a lot of oversight about areas of your life that maybe you're not used to might fall apart over those. So it falls apart for very fair typical reasons that happen in in society all the time those are just Got like it. three buckets i'm sure there are like five others okay a couple of my a some... couple of my couple of my deals fell apart and then uh, one of the deals that went through was amazing there were um uh, one of the most emotional episodes of the history of shark tank it's in my book is about three kids whose parents both died one died from breast cancer the mom and the dad was a chef was raising his little baby girls it's so sad and and he um and he ended up dying from 9-11 cancer. And he had an invention called the Cutboard Pro, uh, which is a cutting board with like a catch. And um, But his the tooling had rusted when he died. He had tried to get on Shark Tank multiple times. And his yes arrived three months after he died. And so, Which is so little... similar to you becoming press secretary on the day your mom passed Yeah, away. that was the hard part. Like, So that was my point about them not telling you. Who's coming out? I mean, obviously they knew I was going to be on that episode, you know, presumably because they they can curate, you know, but I didn't know. And then these kids walk through out there, like, hey, sharks. And I'm like, oh, kids, you know, and then um, and then they start telling the story and, uh, and I I couldn't function. I mean, I can't even function until I was telling it. I haven't I don't even watch the episode because it's too much. I, I mean, I'm very close to the kids, but they start telling the story and they're so composed and their dad had just died a few months earlier and they brought it forward. So like. It was great. And also what Shark Tank is about. So very, very, very rarely. I don't know how many times in the history of the show and how many seasons now, 13, 14 seasons, all five sharks came together. We did the deal. Um, we gave them, I'm forgetting the amount, but we donated um, all of our proceeds to help firefighters, uh, families of firefighters who had fallen. Uh, and the kids, it's the number one selling cutting board at um, 
it sold for I think they've generated five million in sales at Williams wow. Sonoma. We got we got them the deal. You know, they're just great kids. I've taken them with me to work, you know, and we stay in their lives. So I was just with them at a firehouse doing it, making a check. So there's the show is spectacular. I loved everything about it. I talk in the book, we can go with this for a minute, about because I really wanted to show what failure looks like and how successful people process failure. And again, yeah. back to nonsensical Instagram posts about how failure is good. I hate the fa- fetishization of failure. I do not believe failure is good. I just do believe it is an inevitable outcome sometimes of swinging hard and that I can extract value from it. And so everything I've ever gone through, every crisis in my life, every failure I've experienced, that I do believe it's like uh, Newton's third law, right? That every action has an equal and opposite reaction. Every crisis opens up a portal to a parallel universe where there's value being created at the exact same time. So by virtue of going on the show, I wanted to say, what's leveling up from doing Shark Tank? I was like, oh, having my own Shark Tank. So I work with the producer of Shark Tank, Mark Burnett, done The Apprentice, great shows, to create my own version of Shark Tank. And it was about um, Americans who want to buy their own businesses, right? They don't have an invention, but they want to start, they want to buy a business, they have some money, they want to be free. And I teach them how to do so, like house hunters, right? I got the show, it got picked up by CNBC, we shot it, it was amazing, grueling months of work, was great. And then the recession starts or it's about to start. CNBC cancels most of its slate of shows, including mine. And I'm like, oh, so my book was supposed to open up with this triumph where I was modeling what leveling up looks like. You know, instead, I was like, the book was already at the printer. And I'm like, well, now what? I guess I got to take it out. And then I was like, no, I think this is the universe trying to tell me the book should start with failure and I should show my process. And so and I, I every single time something bad happens in my life. If I mine the opportunity to identify where where it is, what the universe is trying to teach me, I am always able to extract more value from it. As hard as it is to see my mother die, my mother gave me, opened my eyes to the idea of having a GED because she has a high school dropout. That single decision is is the greatest gift she ever gave me and is responsible for my career. When I When I did the show and the show got canceled, right? It motivated me to create my own production studio with Gary Vaynerchuk, which I now own. So no one can ever cancel my Shark Tank again. And that's just the way anybody out there right now who is dealing with a setback, I promise you. Now, this doesn't happen through serendipity and it doesn't happen through happenstance. You are in charge of identifying, searching, finding the opportunity that opened up by virtue of the failure and setback and then deploying it right it doesn't but it doesn't happen it's like you have to first accept what i'm saying which is somewhere in the bad thing that just happened even my mother's death there is something positive that is meant to happen and you're honoring the failure i was honoring my mother by making sure that my career turned out even infinitely better because of what she showed me through her life you know you're honoring the grief the pain the suffering by extracting more value from it and it is a 1000 percent true to the by dying day i promise you you can do it but you have to first believe it if you choose victimhood as your identity you will never see it i have never once chosen to see myself as a victim even when i was a kid and i used to have these conversations with my mother saying i don't i don't want to be a victim i don't want to believe in this world that things are happening to me i want to pure on believe that i happen to things you happen to things anybody listening I love that. And I love talking about moms. I think they're the most magical people ever. I have the yeah, best one too. I love talking about moms. I love talking about women. I don't know if you noticed in a book. Um, I think a lot of business books, 
they, I feel like they tend to be luxury towards women or I don't know, or maybe even take like a victory lap, you know, I'm, I'm so great. Or, you know what I mean? Like I have a lot of female executives working with me for me. I support, I want to use my book as just an effortless um, showcase for incredible female CEOs that have entered my life and role models who have mentored me, but without making that the subtext. And so exactly. But, yes. And right? as a reader, I could I could tell that because there were so many tangible female case studies without saying, hey, this is about women and this is for women. It was just for people. And I loved that. Yeah, that's how I relate, honestly, because I think it's because I one, I, I was raised by a single mother. The people who gave me my first job opportunities were always strong women. I married the greatest badass you could ever imagine who's, you know, violated his gender bendy and like the, she's the licensed contractor could build a house, you know, with the bare hands on the one bringing the coffee. Like, like, I just like, it's like, I don't relate to the world that way because it's not like, but at the, so, but at the same time, I don't believe lecturing anyone or being claiming a the hero status helps anybody. So I just wanted to show what I see. And so the, uh, the, the book starts with Freddie Harrell, a black woman who created a whole business around hair extensions. who's delightful. And the book ends with a woman who rejected my job offer only to create her own firm and sell it at the same time and make millions and millions of dollars. So like, I wanted to, but I, again, I didn't want to, I just, I just think sanctimonious. We have so much of that preachy stuff in society right now. I think show don't tell is much more effective. Yes, absolutely. I love that. And I think about often how our culture is very much like do it to prove your haters wrong. And I always think like, I want to do it to prove the people who love me, right? The people who are supporting me. And every time I'm like really stressed about PhD stuff, I am going to tear up thinking about it. I think about writing my acknowledgement section at the end and just everyone I want to thank, like the educators who helped get me here, the communities, my family, my friends. And I'm like, now I got to keep going. I have such a good community around me. I love funny you said that. One of my favorite parts of writing the book that took me so long was the acknowledgement section. And I remember doesn't it make you I just mean, want to cry thinking about it? It does. It, well, it's well, I mean, I love that I got to dedicate it to my wife. And I love yeah. we have a video where I sort of show her. It's so fun. She was like showing me that the books arrived. And uh, and I was like, you know, she, we were doing a whole unboxing video. She hates doing this stuff, but she was doing it. And I was like, oh, great. And then I got to show her. I actually got to show her that she was it was dedicated to her. So it was like such an amazing moment to to honor all those people that had uh, that to let them know. I remember, you know what I mean? Like, yes. all throughout yes. my life, there were people who saw me for not where I came, not from where I came, but for where I was going and were willing to invest in me before it was warranted. And those people changed the trajectory of my life and I got to lay them out in the book, which is amazing. And then I got to dedicate it to my wife, who is the reason there is a book, there is Shark Tank, there is all this other stuff. And so, yeah, but you'll appreciate this when I did the auto recording, I've never listened to a book in my life, still have not. And, but on the way to the recording, I was like, what is this? I was so out of my depth. I was like, I listened to Matthew McConaughey, all right, all right, all right. You know, and I listened to to Brene Brown. it was like for like 10 minutes each, whatever. And then I recorded the book and then I got kind of into it. Um, but I come to the end and I'm like, that's it. And I was like, well, what about the acknowledgements? Like, well, that that's not part of the the script. I'm like, no, no, no. I 100% I'm reading the acknowledgement. Like more people listen to audiobooks. Like I am putting my wife into this, you know, it, it, onto this tape. So it was kind of, uh, but the acknowledgements are amazing. I, lo- I want to go back to what you said because I, I really love it. People will say, well, Matt, you're like, you're, you know, alpha. You're so competitive. I'm like, I am definitely not competitive. Like I I, I am completely competing with myself. And I kind of think 
for those who think like it's good to be competitive, if you're wired that way, that's fine. But in, unless you are technically competing, which is different, like you're running track, you usually don't win by others losing. And I think it's important to always check yourself when you hold your as a virtue that you are a competitive person. Like you should ask yourself, am I really competing? Because oftentimes the competition's a fiction in your brain. You'd be much better off to try to hardwire yourself as someone who's um, intrinsically competing with some idealized version, as long as it's not unrealistic, of who you want to be, right? Who you would respect. And so I imagine myself instead like a horse with blinders on. I'm running down the track. I don't see anything left or right. I only see the goal. And that is truly how I am. I, I really, I'm not a competitive person. I don't, I actually feel like the word is demeaning because it means I'm, I'm, um, I am dependent upon the recognition, you know, or the act of defeating somebody else. So unless I'm truly competing, I am only competing with myself. I love that. And I have one final question for you. You've okay. been doing a lot of interviews lately, a lot of podcasts. What yeah. is one question you are hoping you get asked? What is one question you're kind of like gunning for, but no one has asked you yet? Oh, that's such a good one. What's the role of having the right partner and how could the wrong partner derail your life? You know, and can and you answer just... it for me? Yes. So going back to politics or, or, or war, let's extend the war metaphor, right? No country can ever fight a two-front war. Eventually, you, you'll succumb uh, all throughout history, right? And humans are the same being, but we act like we're a little compartmentalized automatons. You have your personal life and you have your professional life, right? And the truth is, that's not the case. You know, we, we can't leave our home at the door when we walk into business and vice versa. And so I think... Um, we still have a romanticized version of uh, view of relationships that were conditioned with movies and society, which is that somebody is here to complete you. Somebody is here to make you happy. Somebody's here to fulfill you. And then we evaluate that person based upon whether they're meeting that standard, right? But that's actually not true. We're not actually mentored to believe we were born whole and that we are self-sufficient, right? So if you choose a partner that is here to complete you, one, they're eventually going to disappoint you. Two, they're probably not going to be successful at it. And three, it takes the obligation away from you to do the work. But if you choose a partner instead that is a force multiplier, they will unleash you, right? And so I, my partner, my wife, Sarah, is the greatest force multiplier I ever could have married because we do everything together. When we are at Harvard and I need to put together the logistics for this course, she's in the back of the room. And she's helping organize it. When I'm on the set of my TV show, she's on the set as a production assistant. Like we sort of, she's like the shapeshifter that that we morph into the every environment. And now that's, I'm just presenting that as a case study. We yeah. multiply each other. We don't complete each other. And we make ourselves happy. And so by virtue of that, you you, instead of having a potential impediment that is making you move in different directions because you're being undermined, when I hear words when people said, oh, my partner's good, like they cut me down and keep me, put my ego in check. I'm like, really? You have, a, you have, you don't do that to yourself? Because most people I know have a voice in their head that's cutting them down half the, half the time. Did you need a partner to do that to you? Because you could borrow my voice because my voice starts around 6 a.m. I, I have a couple voices. Yeah. I was say, my, my wife, Sarah, does. And I'm always like, you really don't have that voice. She's so oddly well regulated, but everybody, all other 7 billion people do. So when I hear that coded language of saying, well, it's good for me because they keep my ego in check. I'm like, I'm always suspicious unless you're a sociopath that you're not keeping your own ego in check. So 
I, I, I love talking about the importance of personal relationships and professional success because they are 100% inter, interdependent. And so my overall relationship advice from everybody out there, and it applies to business too, is find somebody who multiplies you rather than completes you because it's a fiction. I'm saying this because that. we have a young audience too. And yes. I think it's so important. Like, and I, and I'm so grateful for the role that uh, Sarah plays, not in a cliche, like, I want to thank my spouse. No, like literally, like, how can I possibly teach at Harvard, have a book, do a TV show, run all these companies, do these podcasts without having somebody by my side who's, who's uh, making it all possible. She seems like the best. I mean, I met her momentarily and she was so warm and stunning. <laughs> also, the, also the reason for this incredible set, everybody who's watching this rather than listening to this, the, the home office is pretty ridiculous. This yeah, you have right. the best setup I've ever seen. So Thank you again, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for doing this. I think you are just the force of nature that everyone is waiting for. And I love the book and I can't wait for people to read it and give you their feedback. Tell me their feedback. And again, thank you so, so much for doing this. No, thank you. One last word to the, first of all, thank you for reaching out. You have no idea. Anyone listening, like if you think some, you know, person's famous or whatever removed and is immune from feedback, they're not criticism, but also the feedback helps sustain the effort. So anybody who reads the book, whatever you're dealing with, whether it's something in your life, anxiety, stress, that the book helps you overcome, DM me. If you have a question coming out of the book, I love that even more. And we can go a little bit deeper. I'll do the best I can to respond. I get a lot, obviously, but I'm always paying attention. If you're in trouble and struggling, let me know. And I could be a voice to maybe give you a word of encouragement. But the purpose of the book is not to sell books. It's to disseminate a message that I think can change a lot of people's lives. So letting me know that it's working makes me go another day. And like, cause every day I wake up and that other voice in the head says, it's time to move on. And then, and then I get the message and I'm going to say, no, not yet. There's more people to reach. So let me know. Yeah. And I think a lot of listeners, a lot of listeners think, you know, maybe it's a ghostwriter and this person isn't this passionate about it, but this really is a product of your blood, sweat, tears. It's so personal and vulnerable and it's different than a lot of other books I've read. So thank you for writing it. Thank you so much. You're incredible, by the way, getting a PhD, doing all your work. Amazing. I appreciate you taking the time and uh, look forward to hearing everybody. Burn the boats. And that's a wrap. Thank you guys for hanging out with me and listening to this week's episode. If you want more, follow at Show Me How Good It Gets podcast. I read all the DMs I get on there. And then my personal Instagram account is at MalvikaBot and my TikTok is at MalTalks. If you're listening on Spotify, please leave us a rating, preferably a five-star rating. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, I hope you can write us a fun little review and write us there as well. Once again, thank you guys for hanging out. See you next week. Bye-bye. listening to believe you can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform check us out at believe.com and search for b-l-e-a-v on youtube 
You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.